It had been nearly six months of hard toil. Charlie had set you to work clearing trees with a hatchet. The trees, hazels that sprung from the base of what seemed like dozens of trees that had been cut down, were far larger than any of the rotting stumps sitting beside them like fallen soldiers. At first, you questioned Charlie if it was a good idea to cut them down. They produced food. Why would you want to get rid of them? He shook his head, sputtered something out that was unintelligible, and went back to work. The first day, your hands swelled and the blisters across your hands and palms were like the soft spots of an overripe orange, dulled and unnatural, oversaturated with fluid. It took three days to get back in the field with him. You were left watching with the children. You didn't mind, it was a change of pace, but there had been something curious about the woods. Something beckoning. The managed wilderness, as Charlie called it. Charlie had been manic that first month, working late into the evening, cutting and cutting and cutting. You thought he was just thinking about the next year's winter, but he didn't seem to care so much about the wood coming down. It littered the ground in a trail that followed his whereabouts. He would jump from tree to tree, one branch here, another 20-year sprout from a coppice stool there. He was like a miswired robot shooting about. The buds began to arrive on the leaves in May, and he rested. Somehow, despite the massive piles of branches and trunks, everything came to life as though it had never been touched. The new shoots from the hazel and willow stools stretched from the ground in what seemed like inches per day. You'd never seen a field like this. The trees were in some kind of row system that seemed to curve across the landscape with no rhyme or reasoning. Despite being obviously planned, the curves were calming and reminded you of pictures of grapevines in cheesy Italian restaurants, lazily soaking in the sun of Tuscany, existing outside of the realm of time. Charlie had been teaching you just enough so you could help him clear the trees, but you still didn't even know what any of them were, really. Leaves were just, well, leaves to you. Eventually, Charlie checked out of his bed rest and joined you in the woods. There had been an old fence that had rotted out, and while you didn't need it at the time, you had no doubt it was on Charlie's to-do list. He had smirked, seeing you tease the rusty old woven wire fence from its bedfellows of blackberry canes and brambles, and reached for a branch nearby. We're lucky, you know, he said. These trees... I saw when this land was little more than a field with sticks in it, 40 years ago. He told you about the crazy hippie farmer who had come from the city or something. He spoke with an accent Charlie couldn't put his finger on. He talked about what nature wants and how nature works and everyone laughed and enjoyed him because things were so boring there that his lunacy was something fun to enjoy. Folks helped him out. He had no money after buying the farm and had given him cuttings of trees, 
and in many cases just straight dug the trees out of their yards. Many of them were insolent brush that were worthless anyway. Most towns had gossip at the mall or the movie theater. They had Jacob, the hippie farmer, and would adjourn at the end of the week to the fence posts where they had all arrived the first day and looked out into the field and bet what Jacob the hippie farmer was doing. And that was his name. It was never Jake or Jacob, but Jacob the hippie farmer. It was only long after Jacob the hippie farmer had died that Charlie understood what he meant. He only realized it working the bay, grabbing lobsters and crabs and working with the seasons for years and years, watching newer, bigger boats coming out onto the water and changing how his industry operated, and experiencing the subsequent collapse. In a way, coming back to the farm and bringing the forest back to life was his way of both apologizing and saying thanks. You learned the tree species, slowly. You saw how the trees were planted in order of harvest, even by cultivars. Not just this, but how they were planted so the trees with the earliest flowers were given the morning sun by being planted east, saving them from late spring frosts and helping ensure the most crucial crop the first one of the year. And when Charlie explained these things every time, you realized a deep, ancient part of you stirred. It felt like coming home. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts, as you probably know if you're listening to this right now. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons at this time. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only mini-series called The Prologues, during which we do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast, societal collapse, and reconstruction. Here's a quick clip of what we're doing over in the Patreon-only section. This, there, were, there were a bunch of researchers at the time that were considered contrarians that uh, disagreed with the findings, saying that this was actually the opposite case, and they were right. Um, they were just way ahead of their time. But what ended up happening is because you had these two different scientific bodies that were disagreeing so vehemently, they ended up doing really good record keeping, which has been really useful for modern science, that we have these records because of these people who thought the other people were idiots and they just fought back and forth. And they actually used evidence to try to stake their claim versus what we do today, which is just call someone a libtard on the Internet or something. Too many goddamn screens. Yeah, or something like that. If you're interested in that and you're willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available and we're including some footage from my farm, putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode. So. Any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. 
So go check us out on Patreon. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist history and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge that we find interesting. And, of course, we've got memes. And if this is your first episode, I highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Lastly, I'd like to mention that this is probably the last agricultural episode we'll be doing for a little while. We just wrapped up the Reimagining series, and now we want to wrap this up as we get some new projects on board. We think what's coming up is going to be really exciting, and it's going to tie in a lot of the questions we keep getting on the Instagram, so I think it's actually going to work out really well. We'll be coming back to the agricultural stuff and doing more deep dives into specific areas, things like tree hay, silvopasture, specific species, so talking about chickens, ducks, sheep, whatever. We'll also be probably covering deep dives into very specific areas like seed saving and a bunch of different areas that kind of tie into this agricultural component of how we view a better world. On the agricultural side of this project, we've already pretty much outlined all of the major functions of where ecology and agriculture overlap, and I think we have enough information to start making a plan. If we're thinking about developing a site for some kind of, well, I guess you could call it ecological production, I'm not really sure. It's not permaculture, as we'll be discussing in the next episode. We're not talking about organic farming, nor regenerative farming. We've talked about the basics of soil biology, forests and the biomes they exist within, fruit trees and the orchard floor, as well as water management practices, as well as basic grazing concepts. And in the last episode, we also talked about understanding how to read the history of your landscape. Obviously, like I've already said, we haven't hit everything. That said, I think for a lot of people, it's time to start tying this stuff together. That's probably what most of you guys came for. A lot of people always say, well, tell me the big picture, but you need to frame up that conversation before they can understand it. And that's kind of where we're at now. The reality is, for a lot of people, they might say, well, we could cover all these other subjects and then get here so we have a more comprehensive understanding of how to put these systems together. But the reality is, you can't know everything, or you'll spend your whole life researching without ever jumping in and losing that hands-on experience opportunity. And there's always more to know. By no means do I know everything. I can only speak to the experiences I've had and the things I've read. So with that said, in this episode, we're going back to P.A. Yaumans again to talk about a concept that was tied into his development of contour water systems, and it's what we call the scale of permanence. Now, Yaumans is really underrepresented, despite the fact that he had such an impactful imprint on what is modern permaculture. A lot of people are familiar with his name but don't know a lot about his work, but he also did a lot of stuff on urban design as well, which I think is something we'll be talking about in the upcoming miniseries. So if this stuff interests you or urban planning and the urban episode we did on reimagining our cities was really interesting, I definitely recommend looking to Yaman's work and we'll be definitely talking about him. But what we're talking about today is going to be called the scale of permanence. When we start talking about these ideas of manipulating our landscape with the specific goal in mind, we have to keep in mind how our actions impact the land over the long term and which are more, well, permanent on a site. 
This concept should be both a driving force in the decisions you make, but also in how you arrive to a solution for the various challenges that come up. If I had to sum up the concept of scale of permanence, it's pretty straightforward. The more important things are those which become hardest to change when the system is in place. Notice I said when the system is in place, not just the hardest to change. Putting in fencing on a large, flat, rocky piece of land might be the hardest thing to do or nearly the hardest thing to do on a site, but after everything is in place, removing that fencing really isn't that hard. Making changes to the land, don't get me wrong, is a lot of work, but it's painstakingly more work when your trees are already planted and have roots already dug in deep into the ground. So yeah, let's kind of think from this reverse direction. What is the hardest to change after a system is put in place? It is kind of that simple. I do want to elaborate more, though, because oftentimes people will say they understand this concept and then afterwards say, oh, I had forgotten about this, and well, now it's a little too late, isn't it? Think about the time and effort you might go into planning a site for food production, carefully and painstakingly developing plans, calculating stock density, paddocks, fruit tree clusters around those paddocks so they have dropped fruit just a week or two before your animals might work their way in, or whatever. Oh, but you forgot about how the water flows on the property. And all of a sudden, half of your land floods in the spring, and the other half needs to be watered by the second week of summer. Oops. In Yaman's Scale of Permanence, he outlines the eight main forms of permanent pieces in any farm site. While he is talking about farm sites, like I said, he ends up taking the same model essentially and bringing it into urban spaces. So even if this isn't something you think you'll be putting into practice in any near future, it is a good idea for us in terms of thinking through some of our theory and how we can apply it into the real world. For a lot of people, they might be thinking, why am I reading about this? Why am I learning about this? I'm never going to do this in practice. But for most of us, when we're reading theory, we have that same idea. There's a very real possibility that we'll never experience an opportunity to apply what we believe in politics in the real world. That doesn't mean we don't learn it. We don't understand how it can be applied. And if the opportunity does come, that we're ready and we have the skills we need to be successful. We do the same thing with agriculture because at the end of the day, we do know these systems will eventually collapse. So when we look at Yaman's scale of permanence, it's important to see how we can apply it both in the urban and in the rural setting. To get back to that scale of permanence, the first most permanent subject, which he says is least likely to be changed or impacted, although I'm not sure it's as applicable anymore, is the climate. Personally, this is a particular area of interest for me because I don't see a lot of forest-oriented farmers, permaculturalists, silvopasture folks, regenerative farmers, whoever, really talking about the role this is going to play in the future of our landscape. While we would like to mitigate the impacts of climate change, goodwill isn't going to do it, and our government sure as hell isn't going to do it. If I thought it were, I might not be making this podcast today. So that speaks to my confidence in a solution coming forward. But let's talk about the climate just a little bit. Obviously, you're probably familiar with your climate and the zone and can probably roughly estimate the rainfall. 
Now, if you want to plant, say, a black walnut tree today in your backyard in 2021, you will likely not get nuts from that tree until probably 2025 at the earliest. If you plant a Korean pine tree because you want to make pesto in the collapse or whatever, it may take up to 25 years before getting to a point where you could collect a meaningful crop. This isn't to dissuade you from planting them. It is important for us to think about the long term. While we can estimate the average temperature increases, that by 2050, for example, when those Korean pine trees are really starting to produce, but still not even at their peak, temperatures across North America will have increased by likely at least 6 degrees. But here's the thing. That part, that's not really the problem. Most plants can handle an average increase in temperature. Maybe if you're on the edge of one area, it might not be able to, but most trees will be fine if temperatures go up 5 degrees. There might be fewer parts of the country that can give the amount of chill hours required for some fruits, like apples, but other fruits can, theoretically, take their place. There's two problems with that. The first is planning and getting those fruits in place for when that climate change changes. The second is the domino effect these temperature increases have. Here in the region around Boston, our climate will likely resemble something like Virginia, which, frankly, I don't hate the sound of, if that were all it was. Warmer weather can hold more moisture in the air, which means potentially less rain dropping, all while needing more rain to deal with the heat. Farming regions largely exist because of their weather patterns, and now those will disappear, leaving valuable infrastructure in a place where farming doesn't make sense anymore. Everyone is aware of the fact that warmer temperatures, especially in the ocean, mean more intense storms. Mix in the fact that the air is holding more moisture, and it's gonna be bad. Further, as we're experiencing right now in New England, climate patterns are being disrupted by this warm air already, causing the polar vortex over the North Pole to shift, meaning frigid weather coming in, despite the fact the climate is warming. This might mean it's still hot in the summer, but the cold may stay as cold, if not colder, meaning the plants need to survive more extreme temperatures, not necessarily just warmer temperatures. Mix in the concerns about rainfall, and you can see that planning for climate change is no longer a static thing anymore, and it's something worth considering and discussing. We simply don't know enough at this point of what climate change will look like, except in some abstract sense, and we have no idea what kind of domino effect might occur that was never considered. Secondly, the impacts of climate change vary dramatically based on location, so if you are starting to think about planning a food forest system of some capacity in the future, or are working on one right now, take a minute and do some digging on what researchers are expecting for your specific region. The best rule of thumb I can give is to start with those species that have a wide range of temperatures they can survive in, and to make sure you're not planting species that are right on the edge of the climate requirements of where you are. Or go for it, and plant a bunch of them, and the hardiest ones will survive. That's up to you, but at least go in with your eyes open. Further, it's because of this climate shift that my primary focus with this project has been on perennial crops. They are by far more resilient to climate changes than annuals, and are likely going to have to be a major component of the food of the future, in some capacity, 
and that's something we can utilize our intense ability to do research and develop new varieties of species that will allow us to perennialize annual crops. And there's massive research that has bore fruit in the last few years, specifically in regards to our largest crop, wheat. One last comment on climate. I believe in a previous episode, I had quickly brought up the concept of microclimates. I think it was the biomes one. If you're not familiar with microclimates, it's exactly what it sounds like. An area that stays particularly warmer or cooler than the rest of the region. A simple example is that Usually around ponds, a warmer microclimate will exist in the winter, particularly near shallow areas where the water heats up quickly from the sun's rays. So once you've got a plan based on your climate, which you really can't change even though it might change on you, the second most permanent object on your site is the land shape. This one can be changed to an extent, right? When we think about changing it, we need to have a good reason to do so because those changes are so permanent that we can't really undo them. It's important to really think if the change needs to be made, because if the site is mostly wild, it's worth considering why the landscape has become what it is today. Think about the last episode we just did on reading the landscape. The land took its form because of something that happened. Was it glaciation thousands of years ago? Was it human influence from the last couple hundred years? Which brings us to the third object of scale of permanence, which is water supply. And again, how this ties into the landscape, because water is one of the most manipulative objects on the landscape and shapes the land by following the path of least resistance on your site. If there's a problem with your landscape for what you want to do, why is it that way? Is it something that you can change your plans for, or do you have to make that change? Before you make that change, are you looking uphill? That is, if there's water that's damaging someplace that you don't want it, what is making that happen further upstream? Ultimately, the goal isn't to try to change the landscape and continue to fight it, but rather work with the landscape so that the landscape is aligned with your interests on the site. For example, if you put a road in, you don't want to have to regrade the road every year because the water is trying to wash it away. How can you redirect the water or how can you realign where the road is so that those two things aren't fighting each other on the landscape? This is where it makes sense to have access to a general site topography. And I know that sounds like something that costs thousands of dollars because it can. But a lot of them you can get right off the internet with little to no effort. And there's a few videos out on YouTube that walk you through the process. However, if the topographic maps aren't that good for where you are, Using things like laser levels, particularly at night, can help you mark out the topographic changes using some different colored spray paints and a bunch of cheap marshmallow sticks, you know, the ones that are like three feet long for fires. Depending on your site size and the fluctuations in topography, a couple hundred of these and $30 in spray paint can help you create the same topographic map that a surveyor would probably charge thousands for. It might not look as pretty, but it'll do the job. Further, by doing this, you're going to really see where that key line spot is on your site. So this actually has a couple benefits for you if you try to survey your site. With this kind of information, we can start to piece together some basics around what we want. Do we see any spots for those microclimates? At this point, with this topography figured out, 
we should have a good understanding of what potential spots may be our key lines and how we might work a key line contour onto the site. If not, and you're looking at a swale system instead, then you're already one step ahead because each height in your topographic map has the potential to be a future swale. The key at this point is to start envisioning where your options are for water sites. They don't have to be what you'll use, but you need to know at least what your options are. It's right around here that's worth talking about sector analysis, a term you'll hear thrown around a lot of various permaculture development courses if you found a good instructor. While the goals of sector analysis don't quite fit into the scale of permanence, I do think it's enough overlap that it's worth bringing up before the next two steps in the scale because a good sector analysis will be massively helpful in good planning for the following steps. This process of mapping out your site is very similar to what we had discussed in the Keyline Systems episode, but instead of focusing just on the energy transfer of water through gravity, it focuses on all energy coming into the site. The sun in the summer and the winter, wind, snowmelt, potential seasonal fires, everything that can be measured. Some folks will also consider man-made concerns such as conventional farming sites nearby that might contaminate your site with pesticides. Everyone's situation is different, so take a moment to think about the various areas that are of concern for you. For most people, when doing a sector analysis, your goal is to reduce the cold winter winds, maximize the winter sun, and the summer sun and wind can depend on the temperatures of your climate. Using things like windbreaks to block prevailing winter winds by planting your Korean pines, for example, where the cold wind would cut through, and planting shorter deciduous fruit and nut trees, say, hazels, where you want to capture that winter sun, are examples of utilizing the knowledge gleaned from these types of sector analysis. This brings us to the fourth object in the scale of permanence, which is farm roads, which, for many folks listening to this, aren't going to be a major concern, so I'll be really quick on the subject matter. When we plan for farm roads on a site, think about how it will impact those other objects in the scale of permanence we've already covered. Things such as water flow throughout the site, the general topography of the site already, and not so much the climate. Further, the goal is to reduce the amount of road as much as possible while giving quick access to as much of the site as possible, particularly high-trafficked zones which we'll talk about shortly. While your focus should be, when it comes to roads and pathways, to make travel as efficient as possible to those high-trafficked areas, if you have two equal options, utilizing lands that are not good for high production, say, the northern part of a site that stays shaded and cooler longer, that would be an ideal spot for your road or pathway. If you look up Yaoman's own personal farm, one thing you might notice is the site is covered in ponds, all at different heights. These ponds can form at the end of those contours, wherever there is some kind of secondary valley, and he dammed them up so that he could retain that water. One thing he also did was line his roads around these water sites and put them on that very light curve. The roads operated as an overflow catchment. They kept the water from spilling out on the other side by putting them on a slight pitch protecting the soil below, and maximizing water retention. From there, we can start to think about the main thing we really want to talk about, the trees. 
we understand whether we're looking at swales or key lines, our goal is to plant our trees alongside our water systems to utilize that water resource and limit our need to supplement them with water. With a good key line and swale system, we can reduce most of our need to move any water around the site by hand, which makes management exponentially easier. And if you recall with key line systems, the landscape almost never will be straight, and often with contour swales, if we aren't doing massive management projects to change the landscape, the tree line will also still not be straight. Let's keep in mind, through our scale of permanence, how the road might impact our water management system. If we put a road through, it will compact the soil below and stop the key line system from passing the water through as easily. This means we might want to think about how we can hold that water that no longer can transfer through that key line contour, right? By focusing on these scales of permanence, it's much easier to move a road than to move the landscape. We can reduce our need to make changes by making smarter decisions. Often, you can tell when a road has been put down in the wrong place because like I said before, they'll often be like crack or if it's crushed stone, the crushed stone will be always washed out from the same spot. These are easy indicators that the landscape does not want the road there and all you'll be doing is fighting nature to keep that road in place. That seems to go against what we're trying to do here, right? So I said that we would talk about trees, but we really haven't. So let's get in a bit deeper into them so that we have a better understanding of what our vision looks like based on the topography, contour, and road or pathway location. It should be starting to get clear what the site will look like, at least a little bit at this point. While a large component will be trees being utilized on contour, it's not just as simple as that. Some trees will have specific uses, like those windbreaks, or to keep our house or our barn or other permanent structures cool in the summer. Others might be purposefully planted densely because we are looking for large pole trees that are straight for fence posts. All of these considerations should be in mind. If we are planning on running any type of equipment, mechanical tractors, chicken tractors, or rabbit tractors, or whatever, let's make sure they're spaced wide enough to allow those to move about freely, especially around the curves of the landscape. These are usually the choke points in these systems, so typically trees are spaced at least 10 to 15 feet apart, and on bigger sites, up to 50 feet apart for larger trees. I'm not a huge fan of the 50 foot wide sized spacing, at least for our primary rows, which I'll explain in a second. And personally, I like running smaller, more intensively managed trees under 15 to 20 feet. While there is more management involved, this is typically offset by the fact that larger trees still need to be thinned in order for the fruit to get enough sunlight exposure. So smaller trees, ideally cultivars that stay smaller, are ideal in this sense especially if you can do it without getting dwarf rootstock because those rootstocks usually don't live as long. I don't want to rehash the fruit tree episode, but as you can see I'm already starting to get to some of those key points because it's hard to talk about this subject without talking about the functional aspect of those trees. When we space out these trees, we want to space them for their full size, which we will manage in order to keep good sunlight and air penetration for good fruit production. We want to allow enough sunlight to the ground in order to also continue to maximize grass production and, and something we'll cover in further detail in the upcoming silvopasture series, 
which will allow us to graze animals below our trees. We can also maximize site productivity by selecting specific areas of the pasture where we can cluster trees that do well under shade to plant larger trees, specifically nuts like black walnut, white oak, and chestnut. We'll do an episode at some point specifically around this subject area, but for now, let's focus on some very specific options. Oftentimes, the giveaway for species that can do well in shade can be identified by their natural heights. Trees that grow to lower heights naturally, we're not talking about dwarf varieties here, generally do better in shade. Pawpaws do well and handle the chemical released by black walnuts, so those two should almost always be paired together. But alternatively, if we think about trees that are more bushy, they also tend to do better in shade. Hackberry, hawthorn, goji berry, sea berry, elderberry, Asian variety persimmons, and even plums will do well in these sites, and smaller nut stands like hazels will also do well there. Further, bushes generally do not need as much sunlight. Most bush berries will grow under the forest canopy. While they may not produce quite as much, they will still get enough to produce fruit. Planting your berry tracks of currants, blueberries, juneberries, and so on under trees that you're not worried about having to harvest from, so you're not worried about getting underneath them to pick things or putting up ladders or any of those types of things. So if you've got, say, black locusts for nitrogen fixing or willow that you're using for coppicing or pollarding, this could be a really great spot to put those fruit bushes. This can be a great option to diversify and to provide some plants that produce in just a few short years, while also not creating the intensive chaos that is stacking the concept in permaculture of planting layers of trees and bushes to maximize productivity, which generally creates chaos. But by doing something as simple as this, you can do that without overplanting and making those foods accessible. Lastly, when it comes to this understory, it's important to consider species that will make good tree hay, that is, their leaves are palatable to your grazing species, and ones that coppice well so you can chop off the branches. Willows, poplars, any trees in the rosacea family, mulberries, hackberries, and birches, as well as American elms can be great for this, and also do fine in the shade. The rosacea, which includes apples and a bunch of other fruits, will reduce their fruit load and coppice poorly, so there are better options, but those are definitely ones if you're in a pinch or if you bought or live on a former apple orchard, that's something you can do. Additionally, think about alternative uses for those trees. Yellow birches, for example, make great syrup, and while we haven't covered mushroom production at all yet, birches, poplars, willows, hackberries, and mulberries are all coppicing species that are also great inoculation species for mushrooms. While people generally think of oak and maple as the two most dominant species for mushroom production, these are more sustainable options, meaning you can utilize every part of your site in a diverse way. For those larger canopy trees, we want to think about placing them along the northern side of our site in the northern hemisphere, reducing the impact their large canopies will have on shading our species. In this northern part of your site, it's really a great place for coppicing stools as well, where we repeatedly cut down hazels and willows, for example, on quick cycles for tree hay, poles, for fencing, firewood, and other projects. For me, on my site, because of the size of my landscape, I have all of my trees spaced 15 feet apart, 
in every direction so that all my rows and my columns are both 15 feet apart. And then on my northern end, I have it interspersed. The first five feet at the corner of my site, I go 20 feet from there. So they almost never overlap, or at least in the part that I have, it doesn't overlap with my actual keyline rows that I have in. And I'm able to put those bigger trees where they do a little bit of shading, but they're not overlapping too closely with the last trees of those key lines designs. And all of the northern trees on the key line lines are all pawpaws so that they're able to take advantage of being under the black walnut trees. Further, they're also spaced with different hazel and willow coppices. And then I have my trees designed so the paddocks rotate based on those fruiting periods. So the fruit trees and nut trees are clustered based on when they drop their fruit so that when the animals come through, they can hit all of those trees or all the downed fruit and nuts at the same time. So those are the things you want to think about a little bit, is how can you do it so that your system doesn't require that you go into a recently grazed site to collect 300 pounds of fruit off the ground to go dump it someplace else. By managing it this way, you're making the site do all of the work for you. It's watering your trees for you. It's providing everything your site needs without you doing the work. So like I said, you want to plant around harvest dates. Not only does it make it easier for when you're either collecting your fruit or for when your animals are coming through to clean up after your fruit trees, but it also helps with cross-pollination for species that need it. And additionally, we want to think about those nitrogen-fixing species. So we talked about the black locust. Another very common tree for nitrogen-fixing is the honey locust. The two things I really like about the honey and the black locust is that they have very narrow and thin crowns, which means a lot of sunlight penetrates right through it, which means you can still grow a lot of things underneath it, even if you don't cut it down. Plus, they have really great firewood coppice extremely well, and they're rot resistant. So they're, they're really great trees for a bunch of different reasons. And that's not even getting into cultivars that are selected for their sugary pods. The honey locust, much like the Kentucky coffee tree, which is another nitrogen-fixing tree, have had a lot of confusion around whether or not they actually fix nitrogen in the soil, because in the case of the honey locust, they do so differently than other legume species, meaning it was assumed they did, then proven that they didn't have the same bacterium around their root nodules, and then later it was proven that different bacterium did the same thing to fix nitrogen. And at this point, I don't think a comprehensive study has been done on Kentucky coffee trees, but the same thing has been pretty much assumed at this point. That said, they're beautiful trees that produce beans that can be made into what could be a poor man's coffee, and they're fairly rare because, like the Osage Orange, the megafauna that used them as a food source no longer exists. In warmer climates, Moringa is a common nitrogen fixer. That's something we don't have around here, so I don't have a lot of experience or knowledge on that particular tree. When we're looking at our rows, we want to make sure there's a nitrogen fixer every four to five trees or so, depending on how far out your spacing is. We have to remember the good thing about these trees is the leaf litter that drops to the ground adds nitrogen to the soil, and the leaves are very heavy in protein content for the animals. So it's a dual benefit despite a lot of mixed reviews online. If you look at a lot of the extension school data, they'll often say that black locust and honey locust are poisonous despite most evidence pointing to the contrary. There's a lot of confusion about tree fodder, and that's why I'm going to get into it really deeply in the future, and I'm not quite ready to drop that episode because there's so much content and so much of that knowledge has been lost. 
But it is really important as we have these types of conversations to actually canonize that kind of content so that there's a documentation for these things that were traditional farming methods that have been so far lost that we don't even know what's good information anymore. One last thing on this subject, I know we talked about you want your animals to come and clean up the mess behind the fruit trees, but it's really important to not let them in before the fruits are ripe or even when they are ripe because they will eat that fruit before it's ripened if they can get to it. So that's just something to keep in mind. So at this point, we've made sure that we understand our landscape, the water flow on the site, how to place our paths or roads to reduce impact on the site, particularly in terms of water flow, a site analysis for our needs for windbreaks, fire barriers, sunlight access for our trees and berries, as well as our houses. Our different layouts for different needs should be placed appropriately based on canopy height, and things should be starting to look like a beautiful, resilient site. Now, since we're probably talking primarily from the perspective of a homestead or a communalist-type site, where we're talking about a handful of homes or something like that, we need to think a bit about what kind of buildings and permanent structures exist on the site. This is your sixth object when we think about the levels of site permanence. I don't want to get too bogged down on this one, since for most of us, we're not building a site from scratch, but likely retrofitting an existing house or cluster of homes. Instead, I want to focus on a permaculture concept of zoning, which is more in line with homestead design as opposed to production farming. In permaculture, we have these zones based on the areas we most visit versus least. Zone zero in permaculture is the site of the home. How can we make our home as in tune with the natural cycles as possible? Based on our climate, what role do deciduous trees play in keeping our home cool in the summer and warm in the winter? What about those windbreaks using coniferous trees? How are we utilizing water runoff from this area? These are some of the questions to ask if you're placing a new home on a site, and there's endless things to consider. In terms of site for animals and sheds, we want to centralize a location where we can easily access paddocks and generally want to place this site as high as possible, because chances are this site will also collect rainwater runoff, which can be used for gravity feeding around the site. Further, species like sheep, if you're putting them in a barn at night, enjoy being near the tops of hills as a way to watch for predators, so they'll be more naturally inclined to sleep and drift towards the barn at night, making herding them easier. If you're laying out paddocks, it's important to think about how you want to lay them out, or are you going to use the planes from your keyline design to become natural barriers? This is a common practice, and it's one I don't think should be assumed as easily as they generally are. While the natural barriers from trees make for clear-cut paddocks, I personally find it a problem for running fences, as grasses will build up in the fencing, and the fence will often be a bear to get in because of the growth around the trees. I'd prefer, especially if you're considering electric fencing, to try to line up your fencing in the middle of these paths between your tree rows, because this way the grazers can keep grasses low around the trunks of trees, reducing pest issues and making it much easier to run fencing. However, if you have goats, Never trust goats around your trees. When we think about the site for our animal barn, we want to keep the design of these paddocks in mind. Further, personally, my barn has multiple uses. Not only is it for animals, but I utilize mine as a sugar shack, which requires good airflow, 
as well as smoking, which also requires good airflow. These are kind of some of the ideas you want to start percolating as you design your site. The site where you're planning on putting your building should also be a good central location for beehives and any other odds and ends stuff you're doing that requires a lot of equipment. Logically, then, the following object in the scale of permanence would be fencing. The exterior of your site will need a permanent fence, which in my case is paired both with a hot electric wire on top to keep deer out, a low hot wire to keep burrowing coyotes out, a fruiting vine like grapes to feed the wildlife, and to be an edible option for some of your grazers, and then I'm incorporating in the future some use of hedge to provide a backup for the fence, since I don't really want my grazers getting out because of my close neighbors. Once these permanent fences are in, we can start piloting some of the paddock options we want to run and see how we will need to adjust the fencing according to the grazing schedule. As we talked about before, based on a million factors, our paddocks will almost never be the same size, and sometimes may even need to be adjusted based on season because of grass, fruit and nut drop, condition of animals, that is, are there babies, pregnant moms, are we getting ready to cull, or have we just culled our animals and sent them to freezer camp? Fencing can be a fairly easy thing to change, albeit labor-intensive. And this brings up the whole concept of how a system becomes evolving. What I mean is, when we think about the spring, this is the time when we have the most growth in our grasses. We also don't have much in terms of fruit or nut production, so our animals rely primarily on those grasses. Additionally, this is when we also have our babies being born from various species, and if we're going to cull, it's after those babies get a little bit bigger that we either cull the babies we don't want because we want milk, or we start culling some of the older species so that the babies can replace them and not have too many animals on the site. For a lot of folks that are listening, the idea of killing an animal or eating an animal or thinking this kind of logically, I guess, about the food process and the food systems on your site can be a bit uncomfortable, but it's important to think about how to manage the site so that the species that live there thrive, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to lower your stock density. And that's the whole point of mob grazing, is that you can increase stock density and also increase the quality of the land. That said, we can't go from 0 to 100. We have to think about the steps that get us there. This is looking at the big picture of where we want to be, but it's going to be a process to get to that point. We'll be covering that in the future. The last object in the scale of permanence is the soil. It seems like soil would be the first and most important, but we know how to build soil. It's not something that can be built overnight, but it can be destroyed quickly, and the depth of that destruction is tied directly to the site design. All of the previous factors directly impact soil, and if we have done a good job designing these other areas, the soil health will follow. Now, I want to quickly circle back to that idea of permaculture zones, where I started talking about it and we kind of moved on because we were just talking about the home site. We covered that zone zero and one, but there's more to it than just that. The idea is the lower the zone number, the more frequently we visit that site, so we want them to be closer to either zone zero or an access point, like a pathway or a road. This aligns with how we think about this scale of permanence, right? So zone one is where we'll likely have our annual vegetable garden, right? It's very close to the house. If you have to go out there every day to pick food 
or water the garden, you want it that close. Zone 2 is usually where our livestock live, so again, that road or pathway should connect to them. Makes sense. We want to find a balance between making livestock accessible to us while also keeping them as close to our paddocks as possible to reduce the amount of movement we need to do with them. You can also look at things like portable housing, which is something we'll, again, I feel like I keep saying this, talk about further in the future. Again, our goal is to make the system require as few inputs as possible by looking at what nature does, which many times means we might need to consider slightly reducing productivity in order to make systems much more efficient. This point can't be understated, and it's a problem that we have with our economic system as well. The problems with many breeds of livestock today is because we have sacrificed efficiency for productivity, which might seem counterintuitive. Isn't efficiency always good for productivity? Well, not necessarily. Let's think about meat breeds of chickens for a second. The chickens you see in those commercials from PETA, where they grow from babies to full-size chickens in 60 days, they usually can't live much longer because their bodies aren't designed to and they die quickly and painfully if you don't slaughter them anyway. There's no natural food system that can ever feed these chickens to give them the caloric and protein intake they need which means they can only exist as long as, say, pelletized food exists. If a species can't exist in some natural setting without supplementation, then they won't be able to exist outside of industrial farming. The problem with that is then you rely on the fossil fuel industry and globalization for pelletization, industrial agriculture that creates those corn and various soy products, and all the other pieces that have caused the problems that we have currently. This is why we need to have an economy designed around our ecology, is because this is what gets lost. Now, this doesn't mean you take your 20 sheep and stop giving them medicine or anything like that. And this is a part of a longer conversation that, again, we will have in the future. But I really just want to get you thinking about these kinds of ideas and these basic principles that should really guide you in this process. So back to these permaculture zones. The fact that these zones are designed around a home is indicative that they're not really designed for larger sites. Zones 3, 4, and 5 just reflect even less visited sites on your property. But to be honest, if you're grazing animals, those don't really exist as different layers because your grazers will work through the entire property. The only thing I find really helpful about the concept of zoning from a permaculture perspective is being mindful of accessibility versus frequency, which I don't think really needs this kind of framework and feels entirely patronizing and self-serving for people that want to feel important. Unless you have zero critical thinking skills, it's hard to imagine people aren't considering what kind of work goes into, say, letting your animals out every day. Since Yaomin's influenced the development of permaculture, I wouldn't be surprised to say if these permaculture zones weren't a repackaged version of his scale of permanence that was designed just to add legitimacy to permaculture as something different than existing knowledge. One last point I want to make on the subject of designing a site, we are talking primarily about designing based on a singular family or group of people. I think for most of us, this is the only feasible way to do something like this under the confines of capitalism, and that's understandable. What I want to point out, however, 
is that we can and should look at these system designs and recognize we can make larger versions of these. Large enough where individuals are responsible for each function. One where someone's full-time job is managing mushrooms, harvesting fruits and nuts, rotating and managing livestock, and so on. This is something that can be scaled up and scaled around the existing infrastructure of subdivision tracks, which is why I don't think suburbia should be written off as a wasteland. This sense of collective autonomy will only exist when we show what is possible, and that means designing these systems in the open for our friends and neighbors to see. This might mean getting into disagreements with our neighbors, and trust me, I'm more than familiar with this. Despite living in a farming community, people are surprised when you farm. Only when we show another better world is possible will we be able to engage in these conversations regarding autonomy and direct democracy, and how our food systems and our understanding of what it means to create bountiful ecology that meets not only our biological needs, but our psychological needs, recentering our communities on ecology while making the planet more resilient. Based on the feedback we've gotten from our listeners, I think this is the episode everyone's been waiting for us to build up to. I hope it's been up to your expectations, and if you enjoyed it, please, please, if you use iTunes, please give us a review. These reviews are crucial in our growth as we rank higher in searches, have better data to point to for prospective guests, and allows us to continue to prove that what we are doing is valuable. We have continued to grow faster than I'd ever imagined, and that's all to the work you folks do. Once you've given us a review, every time you hear this at the end of an episode, you can rest easy that you've contributed and helped this podcast continue to grow. Further, it's an opportunity to give feedback, and if you've already given a review, thank you. As always, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. <laughs>